please join me as we continue our sermon series in the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm 121, which is pretty much right in the middle of your Bibles. Now, growing up, I was, I was one of those kids that I got scared a lot, like a lot. My guess is that if uh, you ask my parents, they would say that I slept on the floor of their room as much as my brother and sister combined, right? Any little thing would make me terrified, frightened. Well, I wish I could say that I, I grew up from that, but I still get frightened and fearful from time to time. This past week, I did something that's pretty terrifying for me. Okay, this is, this is hard for me, so you just got to stay with me. This is like confession time. I signed up to go camping this summer. <laughs> okay, it's funny, but it's not funny, okay? I, I remember when I learned that people actually pay money to like be homeless for a few days. I'm terrified, and I'm going to list some of my fears, right? I'm afraid of bears, bugs, body odor. Right? It's like the three B's of the camping apocalypse. Right? I mean, I could list more like salmonella, snakes, spiders, death, dysentery. I'm afraid of it all. No, I'm, I'm joking a bit. But right? we all have fears, don't we? Right? Your fears might not be spiders or snakes. I think you should be afraid of snakes. I think we should all be have a healthy fear of snakes, but, but maybe it's not snakes for you. Maybe it's sickness. Or maybe your fear is death or getting sick. Or, or maybe your fear is, what happens after death? Maybe you f- fear just wasting your life, living a meaningless life. Maybe you fear a lack of freedom. Maybe you fear what's going on politically in this world, what's going on culturally. Maybe you fear violence, school shootings, terrorism. Or maybe it's the fear of that tsunami that's supposed to come, that's supposed to wipe out Seattle and most of the West Coast. You guys know about this, right? I hope I'm not ruining this, right? It's supposed to come any day. Maybe that's your fear. Maybe you fear being alone not loved, or maybe you fear being hurt by someone you love. Maybe it's a fear of, of losing something that you love. Maybe you love your, your beauty, or maybe you fear losing your hair. I'm staring at a few of you who are experiencing that fear right now. <laughs> maybe you fear losing your mind. Maybe Alzheimer's runs in the family. Maybe you fear losing your job, your savings account. Or maybe you fear living in a world of temptations. Maybe you fear letting God down. Maybe you fear, what if I don't make it to the finish line? Maybe you fear, what happens if I lose my faith altogether? We all have fears, don't we? 
There's no one who is fearless. It's, it's why one of the most common commands in the Old Testament is fear not. The assumption in that sort of common command is that we all experience it. We all have our fears. So where do we go when we are fearful? Where do we go when we're worried? Where do we go when we are anxious? When we just ruminate on that fear, obsess over it. What do we do? Where do we go for help? That's the question that we're going to answer this morning. It's the question of Psalm 121. Now, in the next few months, we're going to look at a collection of psalms. We started in Psalm 120. We're going to go all the way to Psalm 134. This collection of psalms is not collected by the same authors, but the same superscription. In each of these psalms, these 15 psalms, it begins with a song of ascents. Evidently, these psalms were collected because they were pilgrim songs. They were sung by pilgrims as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for various feasts. These songs kind of catechized them. These songs discipled God's people as they went to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost and those various feasts. Last week, we kind of, it got us started on our pilgrimage. And now we're going to turn to Psalm 121. Now, we, we could summarize it, summarize it this way, right? You, you, you know this, that if you go to a city you've never been to, or you, maybe you go on a trip, you might Google trip advisors, right, to find the good places to eat, those places to, to, to avoid, those sorts of things. Well, well this text is, it, it's kind of like a trip advisor. And so we could summarize this psalm this way. It's, it's an anxious pilgrim's guide to a successful travels. So if you're anxious, fearful, worried, this psalm's for you. The big idea, and it should be behind uh, me this morning, is simply this. God is your help. And second, speak that truth into your heart. God is your help, so speak that truth inside your heart. Look at verse 1 with me. In verse 1, our author, right, he lifts his eyes to the mountains. And then he asks a question. He says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Now, don't, don't be confused. The help, is, the, the help is not the mountains. The help are not the hills. Actually, the mountains and the hills are what create this existential crisis in the pilgrim. He looks to the mountains And because he looks at these mountains, kind of flowing out of that comes this question of, in light of these mountains, in light of these hills, where do I find help? Mountains are dangerous. Have any of you watched that documentary, Free Solo? It's the documentary of a a man who I believe was the first man ever to uh, free climb El Capitan in Yosemite. Now, free soloing, uh, free climbing is climbing without a rope. So one miscalculation, one misstep, right? And the mountain will allow the man to meet his maker. Mountains are dangerous. They're scary. They're beautiful, but, but 
just talk to Mark Bethune, all right? Mount Rainier is beautiful, but Mount Rainier, if you're the city planner of Ording, is also a menace. The mountains can be a menace. They're scary, They're scary. But, but not only that, but, but mountains and hills hide scary people. That's, that's what this psalmist is talking about. The, the, the hills hide robbers, thieves. Right? Think of those old westerns. Right? Those bandits, where would they hide? They'd hide in the hills. They'd hide in the mountains. And so he looks to the hills, he looks to the mountains, and he says, oh, in light of how dangerous those hills and those mountains are, in light of how scary they are, the real threat of those, where does my help come from? those mountains and hills might be beautiful in one sense, but but they're also dangerous. And so he asks, where do I find help? Where do I find help as I travel by the mountains? Well, the pilgrim answers, doesn't he, in verse 2. We read, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the pilgrim looks to the mountains and he says, that's not where my help comes from. That's not the source of my help. The source of my help is the maker of the mountain, the maker of the hills. In times of trouble, when worry, when fear grips this pilgrim, and by application, all of us, the Lord is our helper. Now, we expect this, don't we, right? If I were to ask you, okay, where does your help come when you're in trouble? I'm guessing you would all give the Sunday school answer, which is the Lord. You'd say, yeah, God's our help. And yet in our fears, just experientially, is it not true that so often in our fears and our worries, we look to anything but God to help us? So we fear death. So we try to extend it. We, we eat healthy, we, we eat Something, I think it's pronounced kale. (laughs) We do those sorts of things. Or maybe it's the safety of our children. So we become helicopter parents, afraid of any pain that might come upon them. Or maybe it's we're fearful of being embarrassed. We fear being rejected, being exposed, being humiliated, being known for, for who we really are. So so where do we find help? Maybe we run. Maybe we, we, we sort of put our, our virtues on display and we hide our vices. I mean, take any fear and there's something in life that promises to help you in some particular and practical ways. H- have you ever stayed up late at night and you're trying to find a television show and you can't find anything and so you just decide to watch those infomercials on QVC? You know what I'm talking about? Don't shame me. You, you know you do it too, okay? <laughs> well, just think of it this way. Each of those products, each of those products help you. They, they promise, sometimes with a money-back guarantee, that they promise that they're going to help you, right? You, you have back pain? Buy this product. You got chronic headaches? Buy this product. You want to be more beautiful? Buy that product. You, uh, you live in a, a sketchy neighborhood right, by this all-in-one security system. All pilgrims, 
like this pogrom. We, we come up against various mountains that menace us, that, that create fear, that, that create real existential crisis. So what do we do? Where, where do we turn for help? Well, the pilgrim turns to the Lord. That's the right answer. And yet we know this also, that just because you know the right answer doesn't mean you know the right answer. Just because you say, yes, the Lord is my help, doesn't mean that you're living as if that were true. And so what this pilgrim starts doing, which is so helpful for us, just practically, just in a sort of discipleship way, just as a a practical way of encouraging all of our discipleship to Jesus, is that he then takes that truth that Jesus is our help and he preaches it into his life. I don't know if you noticed, but but there's a shift that happens in verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 3 all the way down to verse 8. There's a change. The pronouns change. In verses 1 and 2, the pronouns are in the first person, and then in verse 3, it goes to the second person. Now, now what could be happening is that there's two speakers, and so you can just envision it this way, that there's sort of a a young, immature pilgrim, and he's fearful, and then you've got this older pilgrim, right? As a journey to Jerusalem, he kind of puts his arm around him and says, hey, listen, let let me tell you, all about God and how he's going to protect us. That could be the case. I'm not convinced of that. I think there's just one speaker. I think he's talking to himself. I think he's just kind of muttering to himself. He he, he declares this truth that the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is our help. And then he says, I need to tell that. I need to preach that. I need to kind of meditate on that truth in my life. And I think we kind of all do this. I grew up playing golf a lot. And I remember when I was a freshman in high school and I played in my first varsity golf tournament. I should not have been doing that. And I was terrified, but there I was, right? And I walk up on the first tee. They announce my name, my high school. And, and, and for like, you know, like two seconds, there was like pride that like, you know, welled up. And then just fear, Right? I am going to humiliate myself in front of my coach, in front of these 15 people. What if I miss? What if I shank it? Right? So I'm like teeing up my ball, my hand's shaking. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen? So I did what you all would do. I began to lie to myself, right? I talked to myself. I said, Stephen, you hit that ball down the middle of that fairway, right? I said, ball, you go where you're told to go. I talked to myself. Then I stood up and I shanked it or whatever. I don't know. I don't remember what happened. But we do this, right? We talk to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves. We need to take truths of God and then just bury them inside of our hearts. Charles Haddon Spurgeon did did this Every Sunday, if you know who he is, he, is he, he was the prince of preachers in England. And every time he would walk up to the steps of the pulpit, which were very, very high, he would mutter to himself, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. He would just mutter that over and over and over again. And what he was doing is he was just saying, I believe that, that, that as, I, 
as I preach, as I declare God's word, God's word is going to do what God wants to do in God's people. I believe that God's, that the Holy Spirit himself is going to do something. And he was just kind of bursting with trusting in God. And so he just would mutter that truth over and over again. I mean, doesn't that describe most of our lives? It's not enough just to, to say, oh, I believe that God is help. We need to constantly be telling that to ourselves, right? In the same way that maybe a man on his wedding night says, okay, I love you, I married you, and say, well, I don't need to ever say it again. No, no, that's ridiculous. He's got to continually preach that to his wife and into his life. And the same is true with us. We have to take our theology that we believe and constantly be applying it and speaking it into our lives. And that's what the pilgrim does. And in so doing, his fears begin to decrease. So, so let's, let, let's look at this. Starting in verse 3 to 8, there are kind of six sermonettes. We could look at them that way. There are six meditations on God's help. So he says, God is my help. Now let's kind of think through what this looks like. Well, let's think through a description of how God actually helps us. So first, there's going to be six of them. First, in verse 3, we're just going to march our way down the text. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. God will not let your foot be moved. My family has a tradition that uh, around Thanksgiving we go ice skating. My kids are young, and so when they first began to ice skate, ice is slippery. So they would fall. And you can see it in kids. It's sort of funny, right? Because they're kind of, you know, flailing their arms around and they're about to fall. And so they do something instinctively. They reach out to grab anything to steady them. And if I'm close enough by them, they grab me. And because I'm bigger than them, I can steady them. That's the idea going on here. That God holds us up. The idea here is that, that, that our fears, so often they make us stumble, don't they? But God can steady us. God will keep us from falling. God is the rock. right? God didn't just make rocks. He didn't just set the universe in place and then kind of remotely said, oh, I'm just going to let it go. Now you see how intimate God is. How engaged God is. God's not remote. He is intimately engaged in our lives, keeping us from stumbling. Second, verse 3, and then we see kind of a reprise of it in verse 4. He who keeps you will not slumber, then verse 4, neither sleep nor, neither slumber nor sleep. Now, there's many gods in the Old Testament that are talked about. These are gods of, of other nations, and it's interesting because almost all of them are described in the same way. They all have narcolepsy, right? They all fall asleep. Maybe think of Elijah on Mount Carmel, you know, when he mocks the, the, uh, the prophets and the priests of Baal, and he's like, oh, is your, is your God sleeping? The God of the Bible is not like that. God doesn't have narcolepsy. Far from it, he has divine insomnia. God does not 
sleep. He's always awake, which means he's always listening and he's always watching. I I remember with each child we've had, when we brought the baby home, I remember my wife sneaking into the nursery as the baby was sleeping and just watching our sons and our daughter, just watching our sons and daughters just chest rhythmically move up and down, just, just watching, making sure that they were okay. That's the image of God here. God watches us. He's on guard for us. He sees all. He is attentive to our every need. He's on guard, caring, watching, never blinking. Third, there in verse 4, it says, Behold, he keeps Israel. Now, notice the word keep, and you're going to see that word come up time and time again. If you went through and just counted the words that, come, that are translated in the English, it comes up six times. Six times God is said to keep us, to keep his people, to keep the church. He keeps us. I think it's interesting that, that he just keeps saying it. You, you might go, okay, okay, I get it, we're kept. I, okay, I get it, we're kept. But obviously we have thick skulls and we forget it. And so the psalmist, time and time again, just, just reminds himself, and thereby he reminds all of us that God keeps us. And notice who God keeps. The emphasis on who God is keeping. It says that God keeps Israel. Now, now Israel in the Old Testament, that was the people of God, but do you remember the first Israel? Do you remember the first person that God called Israel? It was a man named Jacob. Jacob wasn't a very good guy, was he? He was sort of a trickster, deceiver, deceived his brother out of his birthright, and then for fear of death, his own, for fear of his own life, he fled. And you might go, great, God's just going to kind of write him out of the story. But God doesn't do that, does he? God guards Jacob. God protects Jacob. God provides for Jacob. And then as Jacob comes back and he's still fearful that his brother is going to kill him, God still protects him. And then when you know, he wrestles with God, God finally turns to him and says, your name is no longer Jacob, it's Israel. And out of him come the 12 tribes of Israel. So, 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 so when the pilgrim says that God keeps Israel, the pilgrim is reminding himself that God keeps his people. God keeps his promises that God will be God's people's God. Jacob, as the first Israel, is just an example. An example that God will keep his people. And actually, this room is filled with more and more examples Practical ways, little ways, big ways in which God keeps his people. Fourth, look there in verse 5. We read that the Lord is your keeper. Here, here the emphasis, notice, it's not that God keeps, like, like the, the, the verb 
Like God is able to do things in order to keep you. Like God helps you practically. That, that's true. We see that emphasized earlier, but that's not what is stressed here. It's that God is keeper. That's who he is. So God helps and God keeps, not just because that's what he does, but it's because of that's who he is. It's part of his character. God is keeper. And notice, it says God is your keeper. See see how personal that is? Can you say that? Can can, can you say that God is my keeper, that God is my helper, that God is my protector, that God is my guard? Because the psalmist can. The pilgrim can. In all of his fears, he says, the Lord. The Lord is my keeper. This is personal. Uh, About nine months ago, I made the worst financial decision of my life, and we got a dog. And I remember, you know, I put a deposit on this litter, and then we got pictures, and there were six little puppies. And my kids would say, which one is ours? And I'd say, we don't know yet. Each of them wanted various ones. And then the day came when my wife and I went to pick up our dog. We picked out Millie, this beautiful little miniature golden doodle that if you want, come talk to me after the service. (laughs) And we brought the dog home. And for the first time I could say to my kids, this is your dog. That's the image here. God is ours. He has covenanted himself to us. Fifth. We read there in verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. And then we read, The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. All right, what's going on here? Let Let me just unpack it. When, when I was in college, I had the worst job I've ever had in my entire life. I worked for an allergy company that made like allergy medication, and it paid well. It's the only reason why I did it. But I would have to drive to Plummer, Idaho. I'm guessing no one has heard of that town, right? I'm pretty sure when I showed up, like the population doubled or something. Okay, so, so I showed up in Plummer, Idaho, in northern Idaho, and I had to wear pants And I had to walk this field with a sickle and cut down ragweed all day long in August, northern Idaho. The sun just beating down. No trees, nowhere to run. Just me, my sickle, and ragweed. That's the scene here, right? Right? Palestine is a desert. And the pilgrim leaving for Jerusalem, right? he's feeling the heat beat down on him. And dehydration is a real threat. And the pilgrim says, the Lord's my shade. Right? You know what that feels like when you're mowing the grass in August in Seattle? And it's just warm and hot. And then you walk inside and you feel the shade of inside. Or maybe you're one of those people that have air conditioning, you know. And you feel that air. God is like that. He he, he relaxes us. We can find solace in him. He, we, can, we can feel replenished by him. God is, 
is like shade as as sun beats down on us. And then we have this mention of the moon, right? Which I think this is just a mirrorism, which is a, a fancy word, a mirror, like A to Z, right? Alpha and omega, it means the whole kit and caboodle, right? And so you've got the sun and the moon, meaning that, that God keeps you throughout all of life, all, every day, from the morning until night. But, but we also know that, that there are particular fears and there are particular temptations that come out at night that don't come out in the day and vice versa. There are particular fears that grip you at 2 a.m. that don't grip you at 2 p.m. There are people who sleep deeply, and yet when you think about that presentation you have to give or that hard conversation that you've got to have the next day, and you just can't sleep. There's a reason why the the sort of ancients connected the moon with lunacy, right? Lunar, lunatic. To them, they they thought in some ways that the the night, the moon, would, would make you a little nutty. Well, there's a nugget. There's a sort of a kernel of truth in there, isn't there? There are things that we do at night that we would never do in the daylight. There are particular temptations that come out as you're alone in your bedroom that don't come out throughout the day. There are metaphorical dragons that come to you by night that don't come to you by day. And so the pilgrim reminds us that that even in those fears, even in those real fears, those those sort of dragons, those, those serpents that come to us in the night or in the day, God has defamed them. They might bite, but their poison has been sucked dry. And then lastly, let's look at the last two verses, verses 7 and 8. This is sort of the last way in which the pilgrim takes this idea of God's help and just seeks to embed it deep inside of his soul. We read that the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Notice how, the, notice the breadth of this concern, right? right? That there is almost no limitation to God's watch over you. That there's, there's no adversity too great for God. He protects your entire life. Each step you've taken, each step you're about to take, each step you're going to take in the future, he guards it all. It's all under God's watch care. The whole course of your life, from beginning to end, Right? It's like that old song I like to sing to my kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. God's got the whole world in his hands, doesn't he? Now, maybe you, you read that, right? You, you read verse 7 and 8. He'll keep you from all evil. And you go, that doesn't experientially jive with my life. Right? God doesn't keep us from evil. Right? We, we experience evil all over the place. So how, how, do, how do we sort of make sense of this? Right? Men and women, we, we, we sprain our ankles, right? Collarbones can be broken. People get skin cancer from the sun. So how can this psalmist be so optimistic? Well, well, well in many ways, 
the, the, the Psalter, the, the Psalms, are like puzzle pieces, right? They, they each preach a, a part of a, of a composite, a, a mosaic, a tapestry that, that put all together, help us make sense of this world. And also Psalm 121 follows after Psalm 120. I, I think Psalm 20, 121 is a sequel to Psalm 120. If you remember from last week, Psalm 120 paints a pretty um, realistic view of the world, that there is evil that menaces us. And so Psalm 121 is, is another piece to this puzzle about how we live as successful pilgrims, and it's that God is our helper and that there's nothing too big for us, that he's our keeper, right? And that we need to take our fears, whatever they are, and we need to put them in God's hand. Whatever mountain is menacing you, the maker is more. But, but there's one more way to make sense of this. There's sort of one more point I want to make in closing. And that's that actually there's, there's, there's someone that our sort of pilgrim points us to. There's, there's another pilgrim in our text if you squint. You see, this, these are not just pilgrim songs. These are the songs of the pilgrim. Do you know which book of the Bible Jesus Christ quoted most? It was in the Pentateuch. It was in the first five books of the Bible. It was the Psalms. More than any other book, Jesus quoted the book of Psalms. When asked for a sign of who he was, Jesus quoted a psalm. When confronted by his opponents, Jesus quoted a psalm. When he talked about his betrayal, he quoted a psalm. When he spoke about the hatred that would come against him, he quoted a psalm. When he talked about his own sorrow, Psalm 22 was his psalm. When Pilate asked him if he was the son of God, he quoted a psalm back to Pilate. When Jesus was dying on a cross, he quoted the Psalms. And when he talked about the time when they would see him again, his return, he quoted a psalm. From beginning to end, dripping from Jesus' mouth was the book of Psalms. Just think of how many mountains were menacing Jesus all throughout his life. And the language that Jesus used was the Psalter. In times of trouble, he turned to the Psalter for comfort. That those are the words in which he found comfort in God. All throughout Jesus' life, he trusted in God. Jesus saw a lot of evil in his life. He saw danger. But he trusted in God and overpower and overcame all of it. He didn't look at earthly helps. He looked at heavenly help, the help of his Father. Right? If, if you know anything about Jesus, you, you know that, that he did not have a life of ease. But he did have a life of comfort. He did have a life where he trusted God for each and every step. 
even, the, even his death. His death, right, was not just a death. That death actually secured people's salvation. And then if you go to the book of Hebrews, well, one of the most often repeated description of Jesus is that Jesus is our helper. Ever notice that? I don't know if you noticed it when we preached through the book about a year ago, but Jesus, time and time again, is our helper. Right? He, he helps us by dying so that we can be saved. He, he, he helps us in, in being our advocate so that we can pray to him. Je- Jesus helps us because in his resurrection is our resurrection. I mean, you could list so many but Jesus himself is our help. Now, th- this is a psalm all about help. It's a psalm all about learning to trust God to be our help. But it's also a reminder that the same God who cared enough to send his son to help us is the same God who can help you in whatever you're facing right now. For the pilgrim in this psalm, that there is real danger that lurked in those mountains, in those hills. For us, we all have our existential crises. We all have fears. Where do you look for help? This past week, um, last Sunday, one of you asked me a question after the service. You asked if I'd hurt my back because I looked stiff. Well... I didn't share the whole story, so now I'm going to confess the real story about what happened last Saturday, right before Sunday. I was trying to be a cool dad, and so I got on a hoverboard. And so I got on a hoverboard, and I was thinking I was really cool as I was picking up speed. I did a 360. It was great. But then there came a moment when I had to step off that hoverboard, and I needed help. But my pride would not let me or allow me to ask for help. So I thought, I got this. So, like an idiot, I just took one foot off the hoverboard and tried to step down, and the thing shot. And all six, four of me came tumbling down, and I landed on my back in car keys. Now, it was funny. My wife laughed hysterically, and it was funny. But... Let this just serve as a cautionary tale about how often we look for help within, don't we? We don't need help. We got this. Man up. But so often we don't got this. And it's not funny. And all the little ways in which we turn to other things to help us, we need a reminder that ultimately our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we, we come to you. We come to you in our pride, confessing so often how we just want to help ourselves. Lord, but you are our help in times of trouble. And so we pray, Lord, whatever's going on in, in our various lives, whatever things are menacing us, whatever things keep us up at night, whatever worries and fears we have, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would bring them to you, set them at your feet, and trust in your sovereign and providential care to do that which is good and best for us. 
We trust you. Help us to trust you more. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.